Hello, dear listener. It's Dev. Uh, I'm coming to you before the intro music because there's a content warning I would like to deliver to you about this episode. This episode is about horror, but we aren't trying to... It's not a scary episode. At least we're not trying to do that. That said, there are mentions of some things that some listeners may find disturbing. So here we go. There are mentions of suicide. There are depictions of body horror, including eye stuff, blood, mutilation, uh, general, general nastiness there. There's also discussions of spiders and arachnophobia. Additionally, there are a few spoilers for some popular media in this episode, but they're all minor, I promise. So minor spoiler warning for Get Out, Resident Evil 4, Outer Wilds, and Curse of Strahd. Thank you so much for listening to the Atlas Loom. Uh, here comes the intro music, and I will be talking to you again very shortly. Bye-bye. And welcome back to another episode of the Atlas Loom, an exploration of world building for tabletop and beyond. My name is Diana Fay, one of your lovely co-hosts, uh, and I'm joined today, as always, by Endeavorance, a man who claims to faithfully follow the old ways, which in reality just means he still owns a Nokia phone. How's it going, Endeavorance? I play Snake constantly. And I just don't understand. Everybody is talking about these newfangled games. You've got you've got three whole Baldur's Gates. That's just too yep. many of them. What more well, do you need? I've got four directions and some apples. I'm set. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, we are back today talking about something that I was so fucking stoked for. Ever since we started thinking about this podcast as a concept and talking about world building and how you can world build better, build certain themes for your tabletop games like D&D and whatnot. I was like, Dev, Dev, we have to do an episode on horror. And we're finally doing it. We're doing it like a month later. I'm so fucking stoked. Finally, episode five, finally doing finally. it. Finally. Y'all, this oh is Diana's God. last episode, by the way. This is all yeah, she wanted out of this podcast. This. She's going to talk about horror for a bit. I'm going to I'm gonna sit here and smile into the camera while Diana tells you about how to do horror stuff. Uh, because yeah. between the two of us, one of us is like a very well-seasoned horror DM. Uh, and the other seasoned. one is a goofy goober. So who fucks up my horror games? I yeah. mean, you know, I do what I can. I, try. I don't even remember the well. Okay, I'm never gonna forget that fucking well. God damn it! Hey, look, <laughs> everyone is always telling me that I'm a thirsty boy. What what better thing to do than jump down a well? Ugh. Anyway, yeah, we're here to talk about horror. Um, not so much like how you can set a horror vibe in your campaign atmospherically. We're gonna touch on that a little bit, but for more info and vibes, go to our previous episode, episode four on tone and vibe. Today, we're going to talk about actual functional, like, template, follow these steps to scare your players sort of strategies that you can use. It's important to keep your players on their toes. And, yeah. and like, like, that's what we're here for, right? Like, sure, we want to weave a story and, like, tell a, a tale and, like, have fun with our friends. But also kind of want to make our friends piss their pants just a little bit. Not too much. Just not an uncomfortable amount. Just a, just, a, just a little bit. Just a smidge. A yeah. smidge of piss. Yeah. Smidge of piss. Welcome back to the Atlas Loom. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> well, at least now we have our episode title. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing a smidge of piss. Anyway, uh, I pride myself on being a, a horror GM, uh, and I, I tend to lean towards Got to really enunciate the R's in that one, Diana. 
forward. So we were talking about this in the last episode about how we, when we get to this specific episode talking about horror, my accent does not contribute well to the fact that I'm talking about horror and not horrors. Can we, uh, yeah, can, we so, can we just use the word spooky maybe? Fine. <laughs> I, yeah. I pride myself on being a spooky GM running spooky games. And most of that is because I hate spooky shit. I am not good at watching spooky movies, playing spooky games. I hate this. (laughs) This sucks. (laughs) Say what you want to do. You you do what you want to do. I will will do my best to not say a thing. Anyway, I don't. So here's the thing about tabletops and also books, because we are not strictly a tabletop podcast. Like you can use our strategies to write your books if you want to. Things like tabletops and books. If you want to. If you want to. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, I guess. Like, go off if you want. Uh, But we were talking about how generally, like, not having to deal with jump scares in, like, you would in video games and movies makes it a lot easier for people like me to digest spooky tabletop content and books and things like that. And so I, that's, that's kind of why I specialize in it is because uh, I am weak and uh, a scaredy cat, and this is the only way I can get my fix. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily weak. I, I think I have watched a lot of scary movies at this point, and for one, jump scares are a cheap tactic. Like, jump scares <laughs> are, are shitty. And, like, okay, I know I, I'm, about, I'm probably about to get us canceled, uh, but... Oh, God, don't drag me down with you. Uh, it's why I don't like Five Nights at Freddy's. Um, I know that it's, like, a, a really well-loved oh, franchise. Oh. I know that people, like, I know that it has a huge fan base. I'm not <laughs> trying to say that you're wrong if you like Five Nights at Freddy's. I don't think that jump scares do it for me. And, and like, it's just like, oh, I've been scared... But then I'm over it now. It doesn't leave me with a lasting sense of dread. And it doesn't leave me, it doesn't give me like a uh, feeling of I've been put through the ringer. It just makes me be on edge because I'm waiting for a jump scare. And that's that game just punishes you with jump scares. And same for movies, right? Like plenty of scary movies are just jump scare after jump scare. And you're just frightened because you got spooked. It's not the same as like, I can't sleep tonight. Because I can't stop thinking about what I just saw in that movie. And like, uh, I, need, I need the lights on now. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. It's And I haven't figured this out yet. Because as much as I, I hate jump scares, the concept of them and the, the horror that they invoke is a really valuable tool for scaring people. I wish it was easier to do in tabletops. The closest I've come is something that Seb did in his recent one shot, uh, which he wrote himself, where I was in the game. This was D&D. We were playing a one shot that had that centered around this like monster that was tall and lanky, almost Slenderman like, had a big uncanny valley type smile and otherwise featureless face. Uh, and my character at one point cast, I believe, Detect Good and Evil. And it the the most the closest I got to a jump scare in that game was the DM telling me, Yeah, you detect evil. And I was like, Oh, okay, where? And he's like, maybe three feet behind you. And that is the sort of horror that like that's that's about as close Absolutely. as you can get to a jump scare in a, in a game or a book uh, when yeah. it comes to, like what we do. Absolutely, and, and, and like, like you're not gonna. Hopefully, you're not sitting there uh, in the DM chair, like trying to draw your player's attention in, and then, boom, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's, it's not, not gonna. It's not gonna. If you if you pulled that off successfully, sometime I would love to hear about it, and I'm sure it was great. Also. I can't pull that off. Do you see my face? How am I supposed to scare people with this? So <laughs> let's talk about how you can actually go about setting up. I think the term that we are going to lean in on a bit here would be like 
suspense, right? Mm. Yeah. Putting them on the edge of their seat, making them uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Within reason. And I feel like that's yeah, not, a good starting point yeah. for this episode is like massive disclaimer. What I'm gonna be talking about, and I don't know about Deb here, but when I come when when I do horror type things, it tends to go into vivid detail of generally this stuff you don't want to encounter in day-to-day life. It deals with heavy themes. I have like a fucking mile-long session zero. Google form that I have my players fill out before they jump into one of my games. Um, and it, it deals with some really heavy subjects. I'm going to try and avoid those as best I can in this episode. But that being said, there's still going to be vivid descriptions of gore, uncanny valley type monsters, different like evocative descriptions of horror themes. So just be aware of that going into, first of all, watching this episode, but also on the DM side, when you're running horror campaigns, horror scenes, please make sure you're using safety tools. Um, that should go without saying at this point, but it's still a relatively new thing in the community, is making sure your players are safe and comfortable and experiencing horror in a way that pushes them, but doesn't break boundaries. And we'll have an episode later on talking about how exactly you can implement safety tools in your games, how to use different systems, because there's a bunch of different systems for that. Um, Starting from session zero and running through to the end of your campaign, you want to make sure your players are safe. And so, massive disclaimer, Horror is cool. Spooky stuff is cool. Do it safely, though. You don't want to piss anyone off. I want to gas you up real quick on on that front. Uh, Uh Diana's really, really good about this. And as somebody who's playing in one of her campaigns, as she mentioned, she has like a really big um, like session zero, like comfort doc form thing. Uh, But something that Diana does that I think is really great is every session um, when asking, you know, we're playing, we're playing a campaign that has many, many players and only a handful of them show up each session. That's it's designed that way. And once she has a head count of who is planning to show up, she cross references the, the like results of that survey of what people are comfortable with to, to determine what content warnings and potential changes she might need to make to a given campaign. She's literally taking the group that she's going to be working with in that instance and figuring out what limitations are there and modifying as needed per session, which is just phenomenal. So thank you for doing that. That's amazing. And also, I think, an extremely good way to uh, keep that in mind. Like, I'm I'm sure that every time that you go back and reference that, it's like, okay, let me think through what's going to happen here, what might happen here, uh, and, like, be sure that I am delivering the best I can without ruining someone's day. Literally, I want to know where the, t- the line is so I can walk as close to it as possible. Things <laughs> like where if I have a certain player showing up that week who has a thing about suicide, uh, I will be like, okay, I should maybe censor this scene that has to do with heavy themes of suicide. Or even better, I'll DM them and be like, hey, by the way, like this is going to happen in this episode. Like, is this okay? And 90% of the time they're like, actually, yeah, like if you portray it in that sort of way, I'm fine. And so... And and that's why, and I'll go into this more during the safety tools episode, is knowing your player's boundaries will give you more freedoms, not less, in the end. Um, Because then if I know that everyone who's showing up has no boundaries whatsoever, then I can fucking roll up my sleeves. I can go ham. And honestly, I will say, it can help, especially when you're going into, like, a horror-themed campaign or, you know, series or one-shot. Knowing what your players are afraid of and having permission to play off of those fears specifically Oh my God, it's so much fun. So I had a player come up to me for this same campaign and I won't out them uh, since you're in it, but they came up to me and they filled out that consent form and they were like, hey, by the way, I have a fear of, let's say spiders. And they said, that is like a real life fear. Like genuinely, I have arachnophobia, but 
if you play off of that in the campaign, I think it could be kind of fun. And so asking your players what they what fears they want kind of like mess with could also be really fun. Uh, and it's a good way to still respect their boundaries and their their safety needs, but also making sure your campaign hits home with them. So it's worth not just asking like, hey, what should I stay away from? But also asking like, hey, what kind of strings can I pull? I, I want to be super clear, actually, like phobias are to be respected. Like they're not a thing that's like, oh, well, we can do a little bit of spider. It's if someone has like arachnophobia, they're going to fear for their actual life at just the notion of it. Like, it's not funny. It's not, uh, it's not a thing to like push up against that kind of boundary yeah. or whatever. Like your body really goes into stress mode. Like yeah. it is not good for your health. Yeah. Um, and on that front, I think there's also another way that to approach all of this entirely. Um, as much as like spooking, spooking people who are willing to be spooked again, consent, um, is, is great. If you need that level of abstraction and you want to be able to engage in something that's scary or even just like dark, you can make a scenario in which the characters would be afraid and the players are not right. Like you the players can work with you and with each other to identify what fears do their characters have that are nowhere near any fear that the player has. So the player can get into character and be afraid, but isn't actually going to have to worry about getting for realsies spooked and can probably sleep tonight. Yeah, exactly. Because in the end, if your player's not sleeping at night due to your game, they're not going to want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so Diana, how do you uh, spook me? I'm so glad you asked. Let me pull up the massive list of bullet points I had for this episode. Because, my God, I was so fucking stoked for this episode. Um, there's if anybody needs me, do. I'll be on this side of the screen while Diana is doing the rest of the episode. I'm so excited. Um, so when it comes to horror, there are – sorry, spookiness. There are – I'm going to keep saying horror. I don't give a shit. Go for it's it. up to you to you – can, you can spike my audio at the very last syllable of that word every yeah, time I Yeah, I'm going to have to like go in and manually tweak the waveforms. <laughs> When it comes to horror, there are a bunch of different types, right? And Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, for those who play D&D, kind of outlines a couple of these. I'm just going to go over a few. Um, there is cosmic horror, your Lovecraftian sort of horror that says there is some unknown being out in the cosmos somewhere. It is beyond our capability to understand it. Like the equivalent of a fourth dimensional or fifth dimensional creature. It appears to us in ways that our minds can barely comprehend that sort of like Lovecraftian vibe. I tend to stay away from that only because I find it really boring. The entire like concept of a horror thing being like, oh yeah, the scary part is the, that you can't comprehend it. That's lazy to me. I would <laughs> rather go into something that we can comprehend and that hey, we can Lovecraft, see. Hey, Lovecraft, you're fucking lazy. Get fucked, Lovecraft. Uh, get get good. And like, honestly, like, Eldritch Lovecraftian horror, most of the time, I've found that the way people portray it in games like the ones that we play is they just stick a bunch of eyes onto something. Oh, that's how you get an angel. True. True. That's sort of like Yeah, biblically that. accurate depictions of angels. Horrifying. Very Horrifying. scary. And then you get into like biblical horror and like mm. religious 
vibes religious trauma, which is a very delicate subject, so we won't go into it super strongly here because I don't play with that sort of thing personally, um, but sometimes your players will come up to you and be like, yeah, like the concept of angels and demons is genuinely terrifying to me due to the way I was raised, things like that. So that's another potential genre of horror um, in a way that I'm sure the the authors of the Bible or whatever were not intending, but still. <laughs> I think we've got our episode title. Biblically accurate spookiness. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, there's psychological horror. That is really it's it's a little bit difficult to pull off as a TTRPG writer, as a story writer, because it relies a lot on knowing your audience and knowing what pushes their psychological buttons, and it kind of teeters on the edge of not being safe for them. Going back to those safety tools, so that's like the most advanced level of horror that even I haven't reached yet. It's difficult to walk that line. But other types of horror can kind of touch on psychological themes a little bit, like the themes of morality, for instance, like your players carrying out some act that they think is good and on the surface is like a good thing. Doing some quest, for example, to kill some person who's painted as really bad in the world. Uh, you know, the quest giver is like, this person is awful. I need them taken care of because they're going to ruin the town with their actions. Something like that. The party then realizes later on after they've killed that person and find evidence to the contrary that this person was actually working towards some grand goal that is good and they've just fucked over this entire town without realizing the moral implications of that might count as like some sort of psychological horror i love i love the what have we done moment yeah exactly it's so good yep moral gray areas we're going to talk about that in a later episode because i have so much to say on that point too um but highly recommend kind of playing to the whole good and bad and gray areas in between in your games so folk horror is another one uh, D&D doesn't really play into this very much because it's a high fantasy type game, at least as written, but Old Gods of Appalachia, which I've ordered, it's on the way, I want to play it so fucking bad, kind of plays into that a little bit, where we talk about folk tales that come from or have roots in real cultures and play off of real things that have sinister kind of undertones or sinister, as opposed to sexual undertones or overtones or whatever the fuck we talked about last time. God, I love that bit. Um... <laughs> Folk horror more plays into things like the types of things that we don't see that reside in the forest in our backyard or in the abandoned mines from back in the day that we excavated and then abandoned. Um, things like Wendigos play right into that. The whole concept of not whistling in a forest, that plays into that sort of thing, sort of like these ancient folk tales that come to life. Uh, I want to talk about that more after I've explored Old Gods of Appalachia a little bit. With regards to sort of like folk horror, mm -hmm. if anybody wants a pretty approachable uh, example of that, the second season of The Adventure Zone, um, The Adventure Zone Amnesty, they play Monster of the Week, which is also another wonderful game system. Um, I've only heard good things. It's really fun. I mean, it's, it's it, it, yeah, it's fun. And... It's literally, I mean, it's set in Appalachia. It's set in a remote town in West Virginia. It's in the National Radio Quiet Zone, which this is another thing that I like a lot, taking something that's real. Like, there is a real thing, the National Radio Quiet Zone. It's a place where it's like, you cannot have Wi-Fi, you cannot have cell signal, you cannot have radio, because there's super highly sensitive radio equipment that's being used at facilities here. And so, mm. like, for science purposes, it is a dead zone. There is no communication. But there's a town there, and that's where the story <laughs> takes place. And the entire point is, that's where all the cryptids are. 
And so like, mm-hmm. you've got all these like scary ongoing things that they're investigating and taking care of. And it's like, there's no notion of, there's no calling for help. No one's coming to help. No one's coming to back you up. You have to deal with this on your own. And it's very other, otherworldly and creepy. You know, the Mothman's in it. Actually, the Mothman's kind of a good character, but like, there's just a lot of creepy shit going on. It's still mostly lighthearted, but they sh- they shim in just like the creepiness of it all. Like the 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 given the setting by default, creepy lost area basically. Here's the thing about cryptids too, and when it comes to like folk horror, this kind of dances on the edge of um, being able to potentially fight whatever horror being you're encountering. Like, and this, if you're looking for kind of inspiration along these lines, right? You should look at the SCP wiki. Mm -hmm. You should look at things like Wendigos, right? They have weaknesses. Things like uh, the stag that walks on two legs and is some un... Yeah, yeah, that sort of creepy folklore type stuff. It operates within rules. You can avoid it or you can fight it using those rules. That's one end of the spectrum when it comes to how you interact as a player or how your players interact with these horror type entities. The other end is that cosmic unfathomable horror that I was talking about earlier where it's like, yep, this just exists in the world. You're fucked. And that's where Call of Cthulhu comes in, right? Like that sort of game where you cannot fight whatever you run into. Your only option is to run or die. And that's like the fundamental part of the game. So think about where your game and where the horror that you're aiming for lies on that spectrum and make sure your players are aware of where you are on that spectrum before they go into it. Because if you're trying to play like a Call of Cthulhu type game and your players are not aware of that, they're going to try and fight God. And like, it's just, it's going to not end well for anyone. They're going to be surprised when they get their asses kicked. Um, And then on the other end, if the entire point of the game is to kill a certain cryptid or thing investing some wood somewhere and they run away from it instead, that's going to derail your campaign. So just make sure you know where you lie on that spectrum and make sure the players know as well. I think there's something to be said there as well with... um instilling a feeling of helplessness among among the heroes right giving them a creature i don't like invincibility right like i I don't like giving people a challenge that's like literally meant to be impossible i I do it sometimes you know sometimes you got the story like you know the fight you're supposed to lose kind of story beat but an entity where like this thing is not killable right now like you'll eventually figure it out but like the stage setting of like here is some entity. Let's just take something creepy, right? Like a walking, like like you said, the the, the um, deer or moose or whatever walking on like two hind legs or something, and like mm-hmm. you know skull head kind of thing. They just throw in any any combination of creepy stuff and just have it like walk towards them and not stop. And they throw a fireball and it doesn't do shit. And so they try to like cast some spells at it, and it's like for whatever reason immune to magic. It can't be yep. stopped and it's just still coming your way and like making them realize like we have all this stuff at our disposal and it's useless. Like I, mm-hmm. especially if they're not weak characters, right? If the characters have already proven themselves and grown a lot and still can't take this thing down and it has no reason to be that powerful, that's horrifying. The unknown, the not understanding why, the confusion and the like, why is this, like this is not how the rest of the world has worked in our experience and suddenly we've reached this impassable task and the only option now, like despite the fact that we've been adventuring and we've conquered so many challenges, we have to run for the first time in a long time and that note, that subversion of their like confidence sets a really good stage. Oh my God, 100%. Plus, you know, as always, it's good to take your players down a peg every once in a while. You got to check their ego here and there. Yeah. 
There's kind of a, a subset of folk horror that goes into more supernatural horror. And this is not super common in TTRPGs, mostly because it's very common in other forms of media. And it's kind of one of those things where, like, could go either way. Like, you could fight it, you could not fight it. And in general, we've all heard it so many times, it tends to be boring. You know, supernatural horror, it's just, like, ghosts, wraiths, things that could not move on due to very personal reasons. I think when it comes to supernatural horror, something that sets it apart from folk horror is it's not some ancient entity or ancient beast that just has been here the whole time that modern civilization has bowled over. Instead, it's something that was once human and now is trying to force its way back into the human world. That's kind of the difference between those two. It's fine. Like, it's okay. I just think it's boring. I don't know. <laughs> I think a really good example of that, though, is The Witcher. The Witcher is a very good example the, of that. The entire like, Witcher universe. I was going to say that this is, it's not necessarily horror, uh, hmm. but the, the vibes of the Witcher world is more grim and overall like oppressive. But they take, I, I, one of the things I think is like the most lovable thing about that world is the fact that like everything in it is, I don't, I don't think there's any original concept in terms of like creatures, right? Like they're all kind of pulled from folklore all from all over the place yeah. and reimagined in some cases or remixed in some cases, but they, they portray it all as, I mean, from the, from the perspective of like the witchers, for example, like they portray it as like a science, like understanding these horrifying beings and under like figuring out how to dismantle them and how to, ta how to handle them for everybody else in the world. They're all just constantly terrorized by these creatures, but the witchers are the ones that are going out and like handling them. I think the aggregation of a bunch of like really grim, creepy monsters like drowners that are like out in the water and grab you and pull you down, rusalkas, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, horrifying, if not portrayed, not necessarily portrayed as we're trying to scare you, but constantly keeping you uneasy is sort of its own thing. Like constantly <laughs> keeping you in a sense of like, I don't belong here or like this, this environment is hostile just by virtue of how dense it is with really nasty creatures. I'm not necessarily scared, but I am on edge and uneasy and probably could veer into scared pretty quickly with just a couple of tweaks. Oh yeah. Honestly, I feel like that's something the Witcher doesn't delve into nearly enough, but also like it, it wasn't really designed as like a, we're here to scare you. It's more just like, we're here to help you sh to show you monsters you can fight. And not really going into like the in-depth details of it because it's not a horror game, you know. But it's not there. I mean, there's dark the dungeon crawling is... and whatnot, and yeah, I mean, it's yeah. dark. It's grim. Mm -hmm. And Geralt's awesome. My, Geralt my, my is my good boy. Oh man, it's such a shame about the show. Holy shit! God, I'm, I, so, I'm so okay. Upset. I'm okay. <laughs> Aside from the fact that Henry is gone, yeah, rest they in peace. took that show. They took an excellent first season, then they made like a okay second season, and then they just took a big old dookie on the third season. Just season squeezed out. out a fat one on that one. Don't watch it. There's no third season. Okay. Just like there's no fourth Matrix movie. <laughs> I do think, though, that uh, dark fantasy in general, like, you know, we're talking about horror, but dark fantasy is just horror that hasn't been brought to a point yet, right? Like it's, you take all of the things that create horror and you make that the setting. And that's dark fantasy. Ominous clouds surrounded by fog, 
monsters that are like dripping flesh. Uh, you know, no one's really eating. Everyone's like anemic and underfed. The towns aren't able to, to provide for themselves. Barovia, right? Like it's Soulsborne vibes. Exactly. And it's like it's it's similar to how um I think a good example of this is Jordan Peele. Uh yeah. He, you know, he got to start with comedy, right? Like absurdist comedy is like what Key and Peel is. But then you watch something like Get Out and it's essentially an absurdist comedy skit without the comedy. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's it's the same vibe, but it's not funny. It's just unsettling. And like that I don't want to keep saying vibe. That's not this episode, but that feeling of of unnerved of just something's wrong here. We talked a little bit about like not overtly doing jump scares, not really being able to pull that off at the the table. But if something isn't right and your players like your character, the characters don't even want to, they're afraid to take a step. (laughs) They're afraid to investigate further. It opens up the need to far more deeply analyze the situation that they find themselves in. And I think that leads to some, whatever the opposite of metagaming is, like it's not a matter of optimizing your damage or figuring out how to make the perfect thing happen. It's a matter of how do we, as the characters we're embodying, navigate the hostility that's in front of us, which you can't solve with numbers. You have to solve with plans and action when you can make those plans in character. And play those play those out. Have the person who's supposed to be the brave paladin uh, lead the investigation into the creepy house with the with the shutters that are slamming open and closed, and the door that's creaking or whatever. Um, and then you've got your like scaredy wizard hanging back, being like, "I'll uh, keep an eye on things out here." Like you set up and have to acknowledge and explore characters' limits and intentions so thoroughly compared Mm. to grand adventure open road let's just head on out what's your marching order you know it's no where where, where's everybody what are they doing and how are they feeling about it i was watching old markiplier videos the other day and you know just anticipating the day when markiplier comes out like the rest of the youtubers nowadays and says hey i'm retiring because everyone's doing that now uh i was watching one of his old videos where he was playing an scp game the one where you go down a flight of stairs and then another flight of stairs another flight of stairs and eventually run into the entity that inhabits those stairs that scp i forget the exact number and he was talking in the commentary about how it made a good game because the horror relied on player agency nothing happens until you walk down the stairs the scary thing doesn't come to you you are forced to go to it Mm -hmm. and that is a really fun way to kind of toy with your characters where it's like yeah nothing scary is going to happen but you know your goal is inside that mansion you know that you have to go in there. You have to open some doors. You have to be prepared. And that builds dread. Mm-hmm. And that dread takes place of what you would normally do in any sort of video game or any sort of cheat movie where you d- rely on jump scares. Instead, your players are the ones driving the horror and driving the triggering events. So that's kind of something to bear in mind when you're designing these encounters is making sure that the players are the ones who are triggering it. So before this episode, I was thinking about the different types of you know horror topics I could cover. And I was thinking about Get Out because I had a concept for a big bad or a commander to the big bad or some such thing who would use tea 
as a sort of method of casting spells. And for those who didn't watch Get Out, in that in that movie, there is a character who is at one point, you know, kind of like stirring a cup of tea with a spoon and then tapping the spoon against the side of the cup causes an effect on uh, the main character of the film and causes this sort of hypnosis, right? And so I was thinking how cool it would be to have a character that uses tea as a sort of flavored spell casting. Because I'm huge on flavoring Solid spells. Solid yoink. Solid yoink. So, except it wouldn't be more like, you know, stirring tea and be more like tossing tea into the air and having it freeze in the air or float up as globules, forming some sort of sigil or forming whatever spell effect that she wanted. One of my favorite things to do in horror is the, it was there the whole time and we just didn't notice sort of vibe. And so I was thinking how we could have a big bad who appeared to use tea as this sort of conduit for spellcasting, appeared to be a good guy, but given any use of detect magic or some sort of thing that would see through illusions, the players would realize that she wasn't actually casting using tea. She didn't even have a teacup in her hand. It wasn't a spoon. It was a knife. And instead, she was slicing herself open. And the tea, the globules of liquid, were her own blood. And she was actually a blood mage the entire time. So discoveries like that, I think, are just the coolest fucking thing. It happens naturally in Curse of Strahd, um, for those who have played. And if you haven't played, minor spoiler, in Death House, which is the first three levels, kind of the prequel to Curse of Strahd, there are these rooms that have this wallpaper. And upon first glance, it's intricate designs of, like, you know, grape vines with little globules of grapes coming off of them. Or vivid imagery of satyrs and, like, dryads, you know, dancing through woods, right? If your players in that game, in that room, make a perception check to investigate the walls, they notice that instead of grapes on those vines, it's actually eyeballs. And instead of dancing through the woods, those satyrs and dryads are running from a horrifying creature that is peeling out of the bark of the trees around them and chasing them. So little things where it's like, oh, this extra detail has been here the whole time and we just didn't notice until now is one of my favorite ways to invoke horror and make sure that it's not like a jump scare, but almost it's almost worse. Going back to themes a little bit, one of my favorite themes and the one that I specialize in the most, and it's it's kind of a cheap one to use. So feel free to make fun of me for this as much as you want. I'm working on branching out. Uh, thank you. But the, the biggest one I use is body horror um, because it's easy. It's a cheap scare. And as far as like building horror encounters that are based off the grotesque, the unnatural, the uncanny is so fucking easy. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to give you all the tools you need to do that. Um, and I've talked about this on TikTok a little bit. And Dev, you actually haven't experienced this very much yet in my campaigns, have you? Your campaigns and, have been sunshine and roses so far for me. It's just been for like, Augustine. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sunshine, roses, and the occasional suicide. The occasional suicide that was caused by your guys's actions well uh not my actions so in this campaign uh ladies and gents and none of the above for those who aren't aware of the way that the modified curse of strad campaign runs is when you get to the first church in the first town of the village of barovia um there is a a priest inside who is praying for the salvation of his son doru and Doru had been turned into a vampire spawn and is currently kept as a prisoner underneath the church, starving, unable to feed on anyone, but also just like kept there until 
the priest can pray enough to the morning lord to cure his son, which is impossible. His son's not getting cured. He's delusional about it. But his son is also the last thing keeping him in this hellscape, keeping him sane. It's his only reason for living. This party, Dev included, uh, wandered into the church, heard Doru's screams from underneath the floorboards, and decided to go down into the cellar, despite the priest begging them not to hurt his son. His The priest was very aware that his son was a monster, and he was also very aware of the fact that the party might try and kill his son simply for being a vampire. Sure enough, they did that, despite the priest literally throwing themselves, throwing himself at their feet and begging them to stop. The party killed his son. I want the to priest, invoke that yeah. I believe this happened like pretty early into my character joining the campaign. Oh, I'm yeah. I was <laughs> I was just following orders. <laughs> Yeah, because that historically has been a fantastic excuse for yeah, things. Yeah, I think that no one has ever done anything wrong who has made that excuse. Uh, <laughs> huge fucking asterisk. Holy God. Um, <laughs> so the party murdered his, murdered Doru, murdered the vampire spawn, murdered the priest's son. The priest just stood up, bid them a good day, and ushered them outside to continue whatever tasks they were doing. While the party went outside, behind them from inside the church, they heard the single ring of a bell the giant church bell that was on the roof. And when they went back in to investigate the source of it, they found that the priest had hung himself from the bell tower rope. And the chime that they heard was his dead weight. So things like that are what we're referring to, first of all, and second of all, a good example of the your choices caused this sort of psychological horror. Anyway, my original point being that you haven't experienced a lot of like the other side of the main horror that I specialize in, which is body horror. And there's a lot of ways you can do that when it comes to anything, really. Um, my preferred method, and, and I'll just kind of like list these off real fast, uh, is for example, you can take a creature and you can mess with the length of its limbs to immediately make it scarier. You can elongate them. You can shorten them. You can have a creature with fingernails so long that they drag against the floor as it walks and create a scraping sound. Or you can have a creature that has no neck and is just like disproportionate in how it's like face kind of turns and stares at you. Um, you can also have more limbs or less limbs numerically. So you can have something with like six different, you know, arms or teeth in places that it shouldn't have. Yeah, exactly. Just like <laughs> number of limbs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you can make it so that in or, or modify the nature of those limbs. So instead of walking on feet, for example, the end of its legs end in hands. And you just have hands that are shaped like this, almost claw-like. And it kind of plods along like that. Or maybe instead of walking on any sort of limb, it has these like six insect-like appendages that all end in shards of bone that stab into the ground as it moves. But otherwise, it has human flesh wrapping those bones. Um Less limbs makes a lot of sense, too. So having no eyes is something that I've done before. So instead, the players would just see these empty eye sockets that are covered by a thin layer of skin, just like turning and still feeling the weight of that stare uh, is another way to do it. Just kind of like taking any sort of part of a creature and rearranging it. <laughs> and, that doesn't go there. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, God, there was this one creature I had, and this kind of leads to the Uncanny Valley sort of aspect right, where it had a smile that reached up to its empty eye sockets with jagged teeth. Uh, it had a gash going down the front of its body, this elongated, like, it was a human torso, but long. 
and it had this big gash going down the front of it and the gash was wide open and exposed like jagged bones almost like ribs sticking out into the ether uh you know intestines winding around and nodding into themselves in ways that shouldn't exist Mm -hmm. and then lining that gash was a series of fingers just going down always wriggling um so things like that that are just unnatural this is pulling up a lot of imagery from the Resident Evil franchise for me, specifically Resident Evil 4, which uh-huh. if you haven't played, uh, <laughs> the so Resident Evil 4 it was originally on the, I believe, PS2 and GameCube, but they recently did a complete, like, like this, not this year, in 2023, they released a extraordinary remastering, not remastering, like remake. Um, it is, it is. One of the best remakes I've ever played. Um, it is like they captured the original goodness of the game and then did more. And um, that franchise works hard at their remakes. It's so impressive. Yeah, it's it was great. And um, so in in Resident Evil Four specifically, it is not just Zambos. It's not just zombies and vir- zombie virus. It's parasites. There are these parasites called I think it's called Las Las Plagas <laughs> that they. You're in like this remote rural town in Spain and Mm -hmm. all of these like peasants are all just like weirdly lumbering around, like not really doing anything. And most of them take like a whole bunch of shots to kill. I mean, it's a video game, but also the reason Mm -hmm. is because they, you know, they're, they've got this like parasite in them. But the further you get into the game, you start to run into these people who have, who are far more advanced. Like the parasites in them have grown way more. And they start to manifest in interesting ways. For example, the first example you run into is you headshot somebody, you blow off their head, and they're just still walking towards you as if nothing happened. And then something shoots out of their neck, this, like, wriggling, wrangling thing that's, like, flailing around and has all these, like, sharp, jagged bones on it. Or it's just, like, shooting out of its neck while the the rest of the body is just a human body just slowly walking towards you still. And you have Uh to destroy the thing inside of them to actually kill them. But then it gets, like, increasingly more and more from there. And, like, the bosses are all, like, super far along. The one of the first, the first boss you fight is, uh, he's, like, normally, but, like, he's already huge. He's, like, a big dude. Um, he's, like, a, a freaking giant, basically. Um, like, eight feet tall. And when you go to actually fight him, you're, like, in this farmhouse. And for a while, it's just, like, he's just his normal human form. You're blowing the hell out of his body with a shotgun. But you eventually blow off... Or you like like shoot out his torso basically, which exposes that like more or less his entire spine at this point is Love the parasite. It. And so his legs Ooh. stay on the ground and it elongates and his torso goes up and he now has like this huge like spindling spine. And when you said the fingers is what reminded me that you have, hey, I was like all these little like spindly things coming off of this like massive spine that's now separating his torso way up here and his legs that are walking on the ground. And he's just like lumbering around like that. And then you eventually blow off his legs. So it's just his torso with the like parasitic spine coming out and he's uh-huh. jumping across the rafters like he's holding on to the rafters and just like like yeeting himself from rafter to rafter and you just see this like spindly spine of parasite but then they, they take that like you know it's it's very similar they take it's a lot of like here's a, a human being that then like is mutilated by the parasite living inside of them as sort of their like ultimate form and like they're they sort of like they're basically in a cult and they believe that these parasites are like going to improve them and like you know 
whatever. Speaking of fucking body parts and like corpses and bits like that, um, for those of you guys who, I, I will show you this at Gen Con, Dev, I will drag you over to their booth because it was my favorite booth at Gen Con last year. There's this game, which is not a role-playing game, it's just a tabletop game called Kingdom Death. And it is, you. I, I would provide a link, but it is quite mature. Uh, and the monsters in that game are fucking terrifying. It's like creatures that are kind of like that same vibe where they have a false human uh, you know, that stands up, walks around, but in reality, once you inspect the human, there's like a tendril coming off the back of it that connects to the real monster, and it's just a decoy. You know, something that has hands crawling, like, in parts that shouldn't have hands all over its body. I've used the models for that game because it's a miniature game mm. uh, as inspiration for a lot of D&D characters. So, same thing. Body horrors, just rearranging body parts, fucking them up a little bit. It's um, so good. It's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> um Beyond that, you also touched on another thing that I is not exclusive to horror, but it's also a really cool concept, which is stage twos, um, where you or phase twos, I guess, would be the oh, proper yeah. term, where yeah. you get you injure something enough, and then something else happens to make it scarier. That's pretty much what you just described. You blow off some chunk of the creature's body, and something else even more terrifying replaces it. Um, you injure it enough, and then all of a sudden, it rages and gets faster, you know, gross spikes made of bone where they shouldn't exist, you know, the blood becomes caustic that it's spilling on the ground, something like that to change the mechanics of the combat and also, like, visually get fucking terrifying. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well, and you kind of touched on this a little bit when you were talking about the tentacle bits coming out of someone's neck. We love how... tentacle bits coming out of necks here. We're big on tentacles here at the Atlas Loom. Real big um... on tentacles. <laughs> You were kind of referring to something, and maybe this is my interpretation of how you described that scene, but the tentacles were whipping around with, like, bony shards on the end of them, and then the creature itself from the neck down was still just walking towards mm -hmm. the main character. Yeah. That alludes to another really easy way to create horror in a scene, which is to play on horrifying movement. Dev, when I say 28 days later, what do you think of? Whoosh. Whoosh. Fucking speedy boys, <laughs> little zoomy boys, little scary fucking zombies. If you ask anyone what kind of zombies they don't want to fuck with, it's the 28 Days Later ones because they're scary in how fast they are. There's also, and you can play into that as a dungeon master, game master for your games by describing, and this is mostly flavor because, of course, the movement speed of your character is going to be static. So it comes down a lot to your descriptions, but describing the way that the character or the creature moves can play a lot into the horror aspects of it. You can talk about how fast it is. So for instance, I had a character, or a creature once go up against my party in Curse of Strahd before you joined that had a 60 foot flying speed. And so I described how it flitted extremely rapidly to one character over the course of just like a blink, tore into them with these spindly limbs, like tore apart its flesh and then dashed away and then crossed, like closed the distance to a different character who had been standing by in shock, like watching this action happen and assuming that they were safe. So kind of describing that sort of fast movement. You can also describe slow movement that turns fast. Um, so for instance, if you see something kind of like lurching at you slowly and then describing how it kind of gets faster and like bends down, torso lowers a little bit to the ground and it starts like flailing its way towards you. That's another one. Um, I've got I've got the ultimate in that vein, if I yeah. may. I was, I remembered, I, I'm actually curious to know because I, I doubt that you've seen it because I don't, given I think that you would have mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, how few things I've seen. No, uh -huh. not like that. I think you would have mentioned it already, given the subject that given the subject matter. Um, are you familiar with the Weeping Angels from Doctor Who? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Only well, I mean, I'm less familiar with them than I am with the SCP. 
Yeah. But I mean, like the the. It's the scariest shit. Like, it's yeah. so fucking scary. Uh, the it, for those who are not aware, the weeping angels in Doctor Who are a recurring. Enemy type, you know, like like foe that are marble statues that are completely dormant until you look away. And then when you look back, they've moved and they're approaching you. And they every time that you fast. turn away, they move really fast. When you if you don't look at even if you blink, as long as they're not being seen, they move. And when they are seen, they are marble statues. Mm-hmm. And there are times where it's just like before the the characters even notice it, you as the viewer just see that like that wasn't there before. Like wait, that statue is in a different pose than it was before. And then eventually they get to like, you know, they're actively running away from these creatures and one of them turns around just in time and the creature is in their face, like frozen now because they're being looked at, but in their face and like their face has gone from like the statue's face is no longer just like an expressionless like angel statue. It's mm-hmm. like r- like mouth is gaping with these horrifying fangs sticking out and it's like this uh and like if they didn't turn around immediately at that moment they would have been dead and now they're looking directly at this thing that's like i have to look at this because if i don't it will kill me and like how do i escape given that can you imagine and i know doctor who wouldn't have had the guts or the capability to do this given ratings and all that but can you imagine turning around in the middle of an angel killing someone. So the angel has to pause, but someone's like Already. intestines are outside of their body and they're like screaming in pain. And at that mm. point you look away just to grant them the mercy of the angel finishing the job. Oh my God. Horror, dude. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a slut for horror. <laughs> <laughs> anything, like, I think anything in the space of like when you don't look, it changes is yeah. terrifying. I think a, a, another good example, and this is my favorite game of all time, is Outer Wilds. Um, it's not necessarily a horror game, although they have an expansion that apparently I haven't played it yet, but apparently it's like kind of eerie. Um, but there is an element of creepy in a main mechanic in that game where they, they, they sort of refer to just like quantum stuff, uh, where it's the same thing. When you don't look at it, it changes. And when you look at it again, it, it's fixed. It, it's, it stops moving. It stops changing. Um, and so there's entire sequences where you're like in a dark room and there's maybe like some sort of light that's like flashing erratically. And when mm-hmm. the light goes out and then flashes back on, everything has moved in this room, even though you haven't moved. And there's some cases where you have to like continuously look away and look back until you get things in like the correct orientation. Like things need to keep moving while you're looking away. And the puzzle is that you need to look back and assess what you're looking at now, assess the state of everything. Like, this is the, this is the setup that I need. Mm -hmm. And I just love the mixed in with the useful configurations of things that like, you know, you look away, you look back and it's like, oh good, here's the thing I needed. There's also like, sometimes you look away and you look back and there's just a sign and the sign says like, get out or like just something creepy. And then you look away, you look back, and the sign's gone. You know, like, what? <laughs> what is yeah. that? Why did that happen? <laughs> oh, God. There is an... Oh, I can't talk about it, because there's an encounter that you guys might run into when you go back to a certain part of Christmas Rod, but it's very similar, where it's like, either something changes in the environment when you're not looking, or someone looks, and they're the only one who sees that change in the environment, and then when they look away to alert the others, and then look back, it's gone. Like, that sort of paranoia instilling is so much fun. 
I am also now remembering another sequence in Outer Wilds that is, you know, without going into the entirety of the game, like the system it uses to invoke fear or invoke nerves is um, silence. You can't make noise, mm-hmm. which I think at large, like in general, it's, it's not like they invented that, but like at large, the concept of there's a thing, and if you make any noise, you're gonna die. I mean, mm-hmm. there's an entire movie <laughs> based on that, but like, I believe in, in the game, what I'm thinking of is there's these like giant anglerfish and you're trying to like navigate past them in your, in your spaceship and you have to use your boost a little bit, like use, use your engines a little bit and then just let yourself continue to glide. Cause like you're in outer space. So like, you know, there's no friction. So you just like give yourself some momentum and glide because mm-hmm. you cannot hit your booster anywhere that one of these anglerfish will hear. Cause if they do, they will come after you and eat you. And it's just it's just instant death. So you have to like really carefully get your get yourself on like a good trajectory and then don't touch anything. Let just let it let it go, (laughs) because Mm. the second that you make noise, you're dead. One of the other and, and I don't use this tactic very often. One of the other ways that you can kind of play with the horror aspects of a game or a story without actually affecting it physically because um, that's not always possible. You know, sometimes you want some creature that is just straight up a dupe, just a human in your game to come off as terrifying besides just guy. using terrifying language and, huh? Just a little guy. Just a just a, just a little guy. Just a little dude. Spooky little um, guy. Just a little dude who has the screams of everyone he's ever killed surrounding him at all times. Because what I'm going to talk about is auras. Uh, (laughs) and this is something I haven't used a whole ton in my games. I know it exists in Curse of Strahd and people have mentioned other like ideas of how you can implement auras in a game, but this is another one of those and and horror in general is always going to be very leaning towards less the mechanical side of things, but more the flavorful side of this is, you need to describe this encounter in a horrifying way. One of the ways you can do that is by describing how, when you look at a creature, or get close to a creature, something happens. It doesn't have a mechanical effect on your players, but psychologically it fucks with them. So Rahadin, I believe it is, or Rahadin in Curse of Strahd, let me make sure that name is correct, uh, is Strahd's right-hand man, right? And he is an elf, kind of like a butler sort of person, but more active. And when you look at him or when you get close to him, he has the screams of everyone he's ever killed, including his own kinsmen, his fellow elves, echoing around him. And that like bombards your mind and he can trigger it to cause certain effects against your players. But in general, even just existing around him is painful and terrifying. There's another thing that someone mentioned in one of my comment sections where they have a creature who, whenever you get close with it to it, like within 10 feet or so, your character will feel like your skin is peeling off. Things like that. You know, you aren't actually getting hurt or anything like that. Like, if you want to, you can implement psychic damage, I guess. But the horrifying part of it is just, like, this thing is so evil that it has this effect on the air around it. It's kind of like layer actions, but more localized. Mm. So, I like that a lot. I need to use it more. Uh, But it is mostly, mostly just flavor. Mostly descriptions. On the topic of, like, hearing things and um, sort of, like, having emotions uh, among either the players or characters or both evoked by by stuff like that. Um, I like to introduce a threat and associate it with a sound. I mean, I've mentioned this before with the lumens and the, and the bells off in the distance because yeah. then you can kind of invoke like there's, there's you know, the sound of, of like distant bells ringing and like I had a 
table full of players who were scared of the sound of church bells, which is hilarious. Uh-huh. I've also previously, there's a pretty, pretty central evil figure in a world that I use that is an owl. Like it's a giant, it's not a real owl. It's a giant eldritch owl being, but oh. it makes like screeches and, and like low, like hoot, hooting sounds and whatnot um, as it approaches. But so do normal owls. And so you're walking around at night and I can I can mention that they're hearing sounds that have been previously associated with incoming extreme danger. And it's just a normal owl. And it's just a normal freaking owl. <laughs> and if I want to, maybe it's the bad guy. Maybe it's the big bad. But it keeps them on edge. And, and even if chance. it's not like the players are necessarily on edge. It's essentially like, yeah, your your character these characters have experienced something horrible and what what preceded it is this this sound. This this I mean, I think I think like owls in general and like like hearing an owl in the forest at night is an inherently spooky thing to begin with. Yeah. Um, but having the added layer of like also it may carry the weight of if it's not a real owl, if you didn't check it out to figure out if it is a real owl or not, we might be dead in the morning. Right. That threat. That sound-based threat. Using the so senses. Cool. Gotta abuse that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're big on senses and abusing we senses. We love senses here. <laughs> very very sensible podcast. Oh, yeah. I, as I mentioned to Endeavored several times when we were planning this episode, could go on about this topic for literally forever. Like, I have another several bullet points on my notes here talking about, like, medical horror, talking about, like puppet-like scary movement, something that's unnatural, how music lends itself to the tone of a scary campaign, how you can use safe imagery, like childhood imagery, to kind of twist it around and make it more macabre. I, Anything I would with children, forever. just immediately scary. Anything with children. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh. Um, just you guys wait till you get to that part of Curse of Strahd. Holy fuck. I mean, I'm just uh, thinking about like The Shining. Yeah. But like, yeah, literally anything. Oh my god. Children of the Corn. Uh, not that I've seen it because I haven't seen anything, <laughs> but we do have to wrap it up at some point, uh, which means we're getting to our favorite segment of the podcast where we're going to be taking people's wishes. 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 Indeed. Yes. If you have a question or comment or idea or something you're stuck on, something you would like for us to chat about on the podcast, send us a wish. Wish at the atlasloom.com. That is wish at theatlasloom.com. We've got a handful of wishes here today, and our first one comes from Kugels. Kugels. <laughs> Thank you, Kugels. Really good name. It's, they, they've clarified it's a nickname. Pronouns he, they. Uh, Kugels asks, Hello, Diana and Deb. I'll say, I'm, uh, I would have gone with Deb and Diana, but that's fine. That's fine. Nah, get fucked. Thank uh, you, Krugels. Uh, my Kugels. Biggest, <laughs> my biggest problem is building the interesting mini-stories and quests for the players within my world. I tend to have an overarching story and large events I want them to experience, but it's the little parts in between I have trouble with. Good for the mm -hmm. macro, suck at the micro. How do you guys, or do you guys have any advice on this aspect? Fan of your podcast, Kugels. The easy way to do it is to yoink it. 
uh, fucking steal from some other content. You know, if you're playing D&D, for example, open up any other source book that's not the primary one that you're working with or the primary campaign that you're building yourself if you're doing it yourself. Look at whatever mini quests exist, side quests, and even if they're built into the main campaign of whatever that plot line is, just kind of excise the parts that you need and use it as inspiration for whatever you're doing and kind of work it back into your campaign, either the setting or make it lead up to the main plot itself. Uh, just straight up yoink things and reflavor them to fit whatever theme you're kind of working with at the time like that's just the easiest way to do it it's so much work to fill in the little parts of the world like that like the little side quests and things it takes forever if you try and do it entirely from scratch it's the same as world building really anything any of those little details it's just so much easier to take inspiration from other sources and then adapt it to your needs like that's really the gist of anything i could possibly say um i don't know about you deb like do you just like Go I would say, it. so first of all, uh, in in reading this, you're mentioning you have an overarching story and large events. Like you've got like your big story beats that you want them to hit. Um, I think that when you're running a table, it's hard to strike a balance between, you know, being a DM that wants to tell a story and being a DM that is facilitating an ongoing story. And you got to be careful not to veer too far into the telling a story and, and stay sort of in the having inspiration, but facilitating the story. And I think that it's perfectly fine to have big story beats that, that you're like building towards, right? Like who doesn't want to have like the big moment that you've been building up in your head? Um, for the small stuff, that is where you can really facilitate your players growing and facilitate the characters growing. Working with your players to make sure they've got like an adequate backstory with characters that they that they've previously interacted with before the campaign started. You can then pull those characters and put them in turmoil or have them show up with like something that they need done. Or maybe one of your players in their past has a debt uh, that now has to be repaid. You know, that person came back and was like, hey, remember that time that I saved saved your life, saved your your sister or whatever? Well, now you got to pay up now. And there's your start to like a, a sort of like side arc, right? You don't have to always be marching steadily towards the next major story beat. It's okay to slow down. It's okay to meander. And it is more than okay to just explore what the characters naturally will find themselves drawn towards. You don't need to... <laughs> come up with a whole uh you know town post board full of dozens of random side quests for the players to then sort through it's so much better if they can organically fall into these exploratory storylines that maybe will focus a little bit more narrowly on a single character or maybe you've got like two characters that are like brother and sister or something and they're exploring their own like family past or whatever those are the quests that you want to really lean on the characters and their backgrounds as opposed to the cohesive group as a whole. The group is questing and going through this main journey, but to build up the bonds, to build up the uh, the, the depth of those characters, that's what you're doing in those small parts. And that's That's what I would push towards in general. Excellent advice. Just think about what kind of situations your characters would make a strong decision in either based off their backstory, based off their morals, and then put them in that situation. Give them a chance to show off their backstory to the other players in the party, because that also builds cohesion. So absolutely, just we could do an entire bonus episode on how you can work in people's backstories into the campaign, because that is so important and everyone should do it. And I, think I very rarely say everyone should do this thing in their campaigns. That's something everyone should do. Thank you, Googles. 
that was a wonderful question. I hope that we were able to help you. Let us know. Uh, let us know what fun stuff shakes out of your characters. Let us know what eldritch horrors you subject your characters to because of our advice. Our next question comes from Abigail, or Abby for short, she, her. I just want to say thank you for doing the podcast. It's helped me a lot with my own planning and preparation and even story ideas. Well, thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're so very welcome. Hey. <laughs> my question would be, how do you plan out cursed items or even magic items? Is it a yoink whatever is cool or do you have a framework that can be used to make sure the items are balanced? Thanks again. And I'm a huge fan of both of you. Kind regards, Abby. Abby, I am a huge fan of you. <laughs> This one's a hard one because I am known for being a lazy DM. That's my entire brand. And so I yoink everything, especially when it comes to cursed items. I might change the flavoring of it to suit whatever character I want to wield the item to make it a little bit more enticing for them. So if it's like a cursed flame sword, I might make it a cursed sword that deals lightning damage or something instead if they have that as their character's vibe and theme. But beyond that, um, I have heard people say that they don't really care. I'm Listen, I personally care a lot about balance. I've heard people say, don't bother balancing anything. Just like let the players do what they do and then work around them after the fact. That comes down to your style as a DM and how much work you want to put into it. But in general, I take the easiest possible route, which is yoinking and reflavoring. So we're going to do a whole episode on this eventually on like homebrew items and homebrew stuff in general. But uh, to, to touch on it a little bit, if I'm designing something that is either cursed or has some kind of like like big amount of magical energy going through it that that has it's some major artifact usually like boss loot kind of stuff i like to make huge trade-offs like big trade-offs like sometimes mortal trade-offs i don't love the you know put on a ring and you can't take it off or you pick up a sword and it it starts giving you uh, you know, bad vibes. Like it's telling you, it's like you know, the sword's whispering all the bad stuff in your ear. Literally totally done. That has its place. It's not for me. I like to make trinkets or uh, artifacts that sort of force you to make a choice if you do want to use them. And that choice is going to be hard. For example, I had a major artifact that was a drop from like the first major story arc in a campaign I ran a while back. Um, that was this crystalline heart that came from a manifestation of the god of like life and and energy and sort of the purpose of it and the embodiment of the entity that they got it from was all about giving more than they were able to to their own detriment and so this heart allowed the wielder to do incredible feats of healing at a very painful toll of their own health and constitution so they were able to essentially heal their allies an unlimited amount by sacrificing their own life uh Ooh. not always dying <laughs> but it wasn't the the greatest exchange rate it was you know okay at first like when you first got it when they were first sort of learning how to use it it was like for every three points of damage that you take yourself you can heal an ally for one point no other caps so as long as you could keep yourself healthy and alive, you could continue to support your party by way of just taking on that pain, taking on an outsized version of their pain to continue to heal them. And mm -hmm. it makes it a tough choice. Like you've got this pocket option for healing. If you have no spell slots, you've got nothing left, you can still heal, but it's going to cost you. And eventually they, they grew and unlocked more perks that would do things like sacrifice their constitution for a while to allow somebody to 
not suffer horrendous effects. And one of the ultimate goals was you could eventually, you could give your life to save another, right? Like it's a trade. It's a, it's a, it's a major trade off. The, the, the cost is significant, but the effects are severe. Uh, from like, you know, going a little further in that same campaign, all of these artifacts had that trade off. There was an artifact that was, uh, from the being that brought like foresight and, and like a, a notion of like future weaving. And it was his, it was an eyeball. It was a crystalline eye and the wielder had to replace one of their eyes with it. You didn't get to just have it. You have to take out an eye and replace it in I doing so. You got some incredible power. But you had to actively make that choice, and they lost a lot that day uh, and did not fully recover. And and ultimately, they weren't sure they made the right call. Like, they got some really great power, but they've also mutilated their body to do mm -hmm. so. And they had to kind of, like, live with that decision forever. They also had bad depth perception, which was an ongoing <laughs> gag in that campaign that was very fun. They couldn't really use – they had, like, disadvantage on, on like, all ranged attacks from there on out. Jesus. <laughs> but yeah. they was, Which is fine because they were – they didn't really do ranged attacks. But So, yeah, building things that force characters to make tough decisions, especially moral decisions, make magic items so much more compelling rather than just, like – this can do a lot of damage, but also uh, it burns your hand when you hold it. Thank you so much, Abby. I hope I hope that was good. Our next wish comes from Cyprus. I was wondering how you would go about changing, creating, or highlighting languages within campaigns. Oh no! I feel like often with Five E's implementation of common, it's all sort of hand waved and not usually brought up. Any input on how you can implement language as a part of world building without blockading things for players? I'm one of those hand-waving type girlies. I uh, listen in my campaigns. Everyone knows not. They know common. And if the situation calls for it, they know common sign language for the sake of ease. And in a utopian world, everyone would know sign language anyway. And so that's the extent that I modify languages. I am so sorry. I'm going to be useless on this one. I totally get it. <laughs> I totally get that it kind of like sucks to just be like, well, we all have like languages that we know, but it doesn't really come up. Um, I I think that <laughs> I was inspired originally by like World of Warcraft and other MMOs that do the thing where uh, there's like global text chat. But if someone is on if someone is from another faction, it jumbles what they're saying in text because you don't speak their language. So you don't really? know. Yeah. In World of Warcraft, if, uh -huh. if somebody from, if you're a horde and somebody from the Alliance comes by and says something into the text chat, it's just gobbledygook for you. It, it's, it's meaningless for you, but it still shows up as they chatted. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great way to, to go about like reinforcing that there's a distance between us and taking that into your world, having your, having people enter into a town that, that, doesn't really speak common, right? You know, we'll use 5e terms here, but like it could be that the big city has everyone's like educated, speaks a bunch of different languages. Like it's just understood. This is like a place where commerce happens. You need to be able to speak multiple languages. And so it's just like doesn't come up, right? But maybe you're in some really remote area that has like either a thick dialect of some language or just doesn't speak common. They speak their like mother tongue and they didn't ever learn like a more generic thing because they don't need to. 
getting there and then feeling out of place. Like you can use that to your advantage of, it doesn't just have to completely stop everything. One, there can be like one or two people who do speak. And so they, they, they have to like find someone they can communicate better with, or they can finally use some of their like translate languages skills that they've got. And they can finally use some of the utility that they've brought to communicate with people. Um, and I think it adds a, a bit of genuineness, especially when it's like, here's a person that doesn't speak your language, you're finding a way to communicate with them, and like maybe you still find a way to bond. Maybe you, uh, one of your players like used to be uh, a farmhand before becoming an adventurer, and you're in this like really rural area, and there's a lot of agriculture, and you earn their trust by that player offers to just work on their farm for them. It just intuitively is able to help them out. Like, you know, maybe it's an older man who's like struggling to take care of the farm animals, and that player comes in and just takes over and helps out and wins over the affection of this person of like, wow, this like random, no one ever, this doesn't happen. You must be so great. But like, I don't have a way to, to tell that to you, but we have this unspoken connection already because of our shared like field, you know, quite literal field in this case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you can play on all of that. There's, there's still room to play. Even if you're not just having verbal conversations, hell my character in Diana's campaign up until like very recently, never spoke, couldn't speak, isn't able to speak. Uh, basically the same thing. It's a struggle, but it requires me. It requires me to think about how my character would portray himself or engage in a given situation or not engage because of that, la that, that inability to, to jump in. If there's an altercation in that town and you don't know why there's an altercation, you can't tell which of the two people is the aggressor because you just don't speak the language, but then it's on a more perceptive player to roll insight or surmise what's going on here. And they have to learn, they have to lean on their secondary skills rather than just talking at people. So yeah, use it, use it as a barrier that sets up alternate approaches and it adds so much more flavor and density to character mannerisms and we love that thank you for your wish well i thought it was a solid episode mostly because i talked most of the time and i've been waiting to get all this horror stuff off my chest for since we since before we started the atlas loom i've been fucking foaming at the mouth to do some <laughs> some horror stuff uh so i had a fantastic time and as always we will be pulling extra bits from this recording to post as a bonus episode over for the Gilded World Weavers on our website. Uh, for those who aren't aware, we have a website, theatlasloom.com, where you can subscribe for $5 a month and get access to bonus episodes that are extensions of basically every episode we put out. Uh, so things that are left on the cutting room floor, the chatter we have before the episode actually starts, which goes off on a series of tangents. The last one we talked about fucking... TSA and flying for the holidays for so long. There was so much of that. I had to cut out so much of it, just even out of the bonus episode for the sake of time. Um, bloopers, every time that we fuck up the intro, because we fuck up the intro so much. Uh, there's a lot of extra stuff. We also put out entire bonus episodes, so things like recaps from the cons we go to, uh, episodes that don't entirely have to do with world building, but just are us just chatting and shooting the shit and having a great time. Uh, things like that are all available for $5 a month. Uh, over at thealiceloom.com. Uh, beyond that, the only announcements that we have coming up are that we're both going to be at a couple cons this year. We're kind of all individually planning out our, our convention schedule as content creators. Uh, Dev and I are both going to be at PAX East over in Boston in March, and then also at Gen Con uh, way later in the year in August. So if you see us, come say hello. 
Anyway, with that, time to sign off. Um, my name, once again, is Diana Fay, also known as Diana of the Rose on all platforms, mostly on TikTok and Twitch. Pretty much doing the same thing I do here, where I talk about how to be a better player, dungeon master, game master in general, and then also some other comedic little bits here and there as I see fit. Uh, Dev, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Endeavorance. I also go by Dev. You can find everything I do at endeavorance.camp. Um, I will say I am currently on a bit of a hiatus. I am still recovering from COVID. Uh, yeah. Hopefully there wasn't too much coughing and hacking in this episode. Uh, so not going to be a whole lot of new content from me until February, but I have a ton of content up on my YouTube channel and on my TikTok account, all that good stuff. You can follow me everywhere. I'm still posting on my socials and whatnot. I'm just taking a little bit of a break from producing stuff regularly. This being mm -hmm. an exception, though, because we love talking about world building here. God, we love it so much. We're such nerds. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to do it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Atlas Loom. Our paths will cross again soon, but in the meantime, keep on weaving your worlds. <laughs> <laughs>